Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today, it is my privilege to interview one of the most important medical figures of the last hundred years, and that is no word of exaggeration. I'm talking about Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Now, we skip over in this interview most of Essie's backstory because it's well known to folks who've watched Forks Over Knives or have been involved in the plant-based community, but also because so many people have profiled him so well that I, I wanted to get into areas that most people don't go with him. So we talk about in this interview his time in Vietnam. We talk about his emotional attachment to patients. We talk about some of his frustrations with the medical establishment. We also talk about a very timely topic, which is his views on cholesterol. Um, if you've been watching the news lately, you know that the United States government is considering abandoning any restrictions on dietary cholesterol in, in its uh, dietary recommendations. And we talk about the confusion around cholesterol and around halfway through the interview, Essie, everyone calls him Essie, Essie dissects the reason that some people with high cholesterol are absolutely fine in a way that's clearer, simpler than anything I've ever heard. So if, if only for that, I urge you to listen to at least that part of the interview. But um, the whole thing, in my opinion, is just great. I learned so much. And again, it is such a great privilege to speak to this man who I'm sure in a hundred years, along with T. Colin Campbell and several others, will be viewed the same way that people now look at Galileo and Copernicus, people who brought about a complete paradigm shift, a complete revolution in thinking. And this one is going to help save the lives of millions and millions of people. So without further ado... Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Howard, thank you so much. Delighted to be with you. Ah, it's, it's an honor. I've been looking forward to this. So in, uh, in preparation, I, I reread um, your book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, which I guess is approaching 10 years old. Uh, actually, it was uh, 2007. So we're uh, about, yeah, between seven and eight. Okay, great. And I, I assume you, you started writing it earlier, so the, uh, many, many of the words are approaching their, their decade. And I, <laughs> I, was, I, was, um, I was amazed by a lot of things. And I, uh, you know, your story is very well known to anyone who's watched Forks Over Knives or is involved in the plant-based community. So there's, there's certain aspects of it that I'll kind of skirt over. But as I was reading it, I took some notes on stuff I was really um, curious about. Um, and I guess the, the first question I have is you, you mentioned that you had been uh, a, a doctor, I guess, in, in field hospitals in Vietnam. Correct. And yeah, I was a, I was a combat a combat surgeon in Vietnam from 1967 through 1968. Yeah. Wow. Um, you, tell me what? Uh, how did you end up there? Was that uh, by by? Well, by no. Choice? I uh, in 19. Uh, in 1961, when I was an intern at the clinic, they, uh, as most physicians were at that point, uh, all going to be <clears throat> taken into the army uh, or the armed forces, that you had your option when you started your residency of signing a form which would indicate, yes, you would uh, yield to them the, the two-year obligation but rather than be drafted, you could dictate when you wanted to go into the Army. And my choice was, at that point, 
to finish all my training so that when I did go into the Army, I wouldn't just have the responsibility of an outpatient outpatient clinic taking care of maybe uh, pretty much the daily routine of of colds and sickness and other problems, but rather I would be able to go into the Army as a fully trained uh, surgeon. And uh, when I finished my training in 1966, uh, Vietnam was beginning to blossom. In my first year, I was at the Fort Bragg uh, Army Womack Womack Hospital. And the second year, I was transferred to to Vietnam from June of 67 to June of 68. And I assume you you dealt mostly with with battle injuries? Absolutely. Yeah, it was just a constant constant run of, of really what War is, is is nothing more than a, about the lowest the lowest denominator that uh, that man that man uh, that man can sink, and it was uh, we took care of North Vietnamese, our GIs, South Vietnamese, Mountain Yards, and really anybody who who came in who needed help. Wow. You know that such a, that experience is like so foreign from anything. I could imagine. I'm curious how that affected, you know, and you're looking back, your the trajectory of your career. Did, did, it, well, did it, it have an impact? No, oh, there's no question that it uh, it influences anybody who who takes care of all these young people who really, when you think about it, have absolutely nothing. I mean, our young GIs had really no inborn hatred of anybody from North Vietnamese or, from the, or the South Vietnamese have no inborn hatred and yet for them to go out and try to absolutely kill these people uh, and the, and vice versa have them kill them uh, was about as close to insanity as it gets. I mean, it's like two old men can't get along so they say, we're going to have uh, our young men slaughter your young men until we have slaughtered enough of them, so we'll do what we should have done in the first place, which was talk and try to resolve this conflict. I mean, it's, it's just it's nothing is as insane as war. Mm. Uh, so, um, one of the things that 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 struck me, and I and I see this in in sort of a lot of people who've come to where you have in in looking at. Um, disease and causality is you mentioned, you know, you, you decided to look at epidemiology when you couldn't, you know, there, there were no answers in the, uh, in the medical community for heart disease. And, you know, it seems like a logical thing once you've done it, but to ask the question, how are people in the rest of the world living who, and maybe who, who don't get that disease, it seems rather revolutionary. So I was curious whether your stint in Vietnam perhaps helped you open you up to the idea that there are other ways in the world to do things than just the one you grew up with. Well, I think it was—it's all part of the uh, the background, and the we're all a product of our experiences. But for me to be able to precisely quantitate how the Vietnam experience uh, actually eventually quantitated in my uh, pursuit of trying to eliminate chronic illness uh, it's it's pretty pretty hard to give the exact uh, percentage on this but 
what is so what was to me so striking, uh, and what we got me into this in the first place was when I came back and was given a uh, position or offered a position at the Cleveland Clinic in the Department of General Surgery. It wasn't too long after that that I was chairman of the Breast Cancer Task Force, and and that's when I really got so disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women I was operating and doing breast surgery, I found myself doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim, and that's what led to this bit of uh, global research to to find indeed that there were multiple cultures where breast cancer was 30 to 40 times less frequent than the United States. And that was characteristic, for instance, of Kenya. And in rural Japan in the 1950s, uh, breast cancer was very infrequently identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would move and migrate to the United States, by the second and third generation still pure Japanese American, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. And perhaps even more striking was the incidence of prostate cancer. For instance, in the entire nation of Japan, in 1958, how many autopsy-proven deaths were there from the entire, in the entire nation from uh, cancer of the prostate? 18. 18 in the entire nation, yet by 1978, 20 years later, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year in this country from prostate cancer. Well, taking all that together, I really got a little bit concerned that my bones would long be dust before I might really get an answer between cancer and nutrition, although in hindsight, I'm not sure that's correct, but Nevertheless, at that point, I thought maybe we'd, there'd be more bang for the buck if we looked at the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization because, indeed, if you could get people to eat to save their heart, then they would also markedly reduce the likelihood of acquiring these common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and, uh, and pancreatic. And so, uh, it's, to me, what is still the most thunderous and striking uh, fact in all of this is that that there are millions of people on the planet Earth who will never, ever have cardiovascular disease because by culture, heritage, and tradition, they consume an an entirely plant-based diet without oil. And you're looking at the rural Chinese, the Papua Highlanders, Central Africa, the Tarahumara in northern Mexico. And so uh, when you see and you hear this, you, it's just such an automatic reaction to say, golly gee whiz, maybe if we took uh, these patients who were so sick with heart disease and got them to eat, <laughs> to eat plant-based, we could halt or perhaps reverse this disease. And uh, that's how the, the, sort of the genesis of this uh, whole thing came about. Right. It reminds me, I don't know if you know those um, sort of um, optical illusions where like there's a picture and it's maybe it's either two faces or a vase. And you kind of you look at it the first time and you see one or the other. So maybe you just see the vase. And at a certain point, if you're open to it, you can see the other one. And 
it seems like looking at com- coming from where you did from a me- from a, a, a rigorous medical background, where you know you're reading the medical journals and the 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 research is so detailed and specific and involving minutia that you know you were the first person or one of the very few people or one of certainly one of the earliest to look at this other vast body of evidence that suggested that heart disease that cancers that many other diseases are entirely avoidable preventable sometimes even reversible um, you know, once once you see it, it's obvious that it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, what you think has kept so many people just focused on the Western model of treatment. Well, that's, that's an excellent question. And it's one that I've sort of struggled with because it's, it's really part and parcel of the uh, uh, of the journey that we're on. I mean, trying to get others to, I mean, every time that I make a public presentation, I make it absolutely very clear in the presentation that there are millions of people on this planet who never have to worry about heart disease. It never occurs to them that they're going to have a heart attack. It's not even on their radar. And and you cite this, and you cite the fact that the common denominator is that they're all plant-based, and it's such an overwhelmingly powerful uh, epidemiologic observation. Uh, why it is that, for instance, with their other physicians or our cardiovascular colleagues, while they haven't put that into play. Although I must say that I think a lot of them increasingly are aware of this, but they simply, uh, because they've had no training in nutrition, and no training in behavior modification, they'll back off into a corner and, and will say that uh, patients will simply won't do this. I mean, even very, uh, I think, highly decorated and uh, uh, highly admired uh, physicians that I'm aware of are, are have written editorials simply saying that uh, patients won't do this. And that uh, is, to me, really uh, a reflection of their lack of depth and understanding about how you do get people to make a change because if you just mention to somebody at the end of a 20-minute office visit and give them three or four minutes on why they should change uh, to nutrition, uh, when these are such uh, inbred patterns of, of eating and food since their childhood, forget it. You're not, you're not going to succeed. And I think one of the things that we're particularly proud of is the fact that we have uh, developed, uh, I think, a way that is highly transferable to other physicians, a way of having patients really rejoice when they are given an opportunity themselves to be empowered as the locus of control to halt and to reverse this disease that is otherwise consuming them. Well, it's it's interesting because one of the the big things that medicine looks at is the idea of the minimum effective dose of you know of a, of a drug of a of, of an exercise regimen. And it seems like nobody has really thought about what's the minimum effective dose of health education to get someone to change. And because you you've you've been experimenting with that over the years, you know, having yeah. having spent hundreds of hours 
certainly with your the 24 study participants. Well, I'll, yeah, I think I'll, I will share with you. We had two different uh, techniques that we've employed, both of which have been successful. The first uh, small study that we did, because I was still involved with my surgical obligations then, and the, the number was quite small, but it was really exciting because these uh, 24 patients were truly uh, very, very sick with heart disease. They had failed their first or second bypass operation. They had failed their first or second angioplasty. They were too sick for these procedures or they had refused. Five were told that they, by their expert cardiologist that they would not last out the year. Those five all made it beyond 20 years and we had very exciting uh, results. But the, my greatest concern was how I could get these patients to comply. And not being a behavioral psychologist, I turned and decided to use the same mantra for these patients with heart disease that I had been using with the patients who had cancer. And I had learned that from a West Coast surgeon years ago by the name of Bert Dunphy. And Bert used to say that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer and patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are afraid of being abandoned by their family or by their physician. And so the, for that small first group, uh, I saw each of them every two weeks in the office where we would draw their blood for their cholesterol, we would check their weight, their blood pressure, and I would look over every morsel they'd eaten uh, as a diet diary in the, since the previous visit. Now, after five years, I became courageous, and I stretched it out to every month. And I should share with you that most cardiologists will see their patients twice a year, but at the end of a decade, and now we're really on autopilot, and I uh, was able to stretch it out to quarterly. But it was really quite effective because close to 75% uh, we felt were totally uh, adherent to what we were doing. But now, at the same time, I'm going to share with you how that had to be changed and how it is another form that we use that was uh, really equally, if not more so, more effective. And that is, uh, after I retired from surgery, and uh, with the, along with the book and some nice things about our program that was said in the China study by Colin Campbell and Word of Mouth and the movie Forks Over Knives and our website and the internet, we began getting uh, calls from people who were from outside the state of Ohio about 85%. So there was no way like, on God's green earth that I could see anybody from California, Texas, Florida, or Oregon in Cleveland, Ohio, um, every week or every two weeks. Uh, so we felt that it was our obligation to try to synthesize and put together a single-day intensive counseling seminar. Uh, that's actually ended up being five and a half hours. Uh, at which time it would be our obligation to have these patients totally understand what was their behavior that created the disease in the first place and also how we could empower them as the locus of control to be able to halt and to reverse their disease. Now, in addition, uh, we, do, we do this with no more than 10 or 12 uh, patients at a, at a setting. We find that's very intense. 
we almost always will insist that their spouse or significant other accompany them for free because it's so important when you're doing this sort of behavior modification that both parties be fully aware of what is expected and what is needed. Now, I should add that to help get this going, I will receive a list of everybody who's our seminar from my secretary, usually two weeks beforehand. And I feel obligated personally to call every one of those patients who's coming because I want to get my arms uh, totally around their story and at the same time give them an opportunity to ask questions of me so that coming to the seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. And I think that the, if I could summarize that approach and why we're successful most recently, close to 90% of patients in the 200 we recently looked up, why is it we're successful with close to 90% having adherence? Because you show the patient respect. And the only way that I know to show a patient respect is to give them our time. And that's why we feel that with this uh, pre-seminar phone call plus the five-and-a-half-hour seminar, and I should add that they get all get a very hefty notebook at the seminar, a notebook that contains every one of my PowerPoint slides, several of our scientific articles, a 44-page handout that has many additional recipes that combine with the 230 that are in the two books that we provide. Then there's a marvelous hour-and-a-quarter presentation from a woman who's had 30 years' experience acquiring and preparing plant-based foods, uh, dealing with reading ingredients, travel, and restaurants. And then we give everybody a DVD of the entire five-and-a-half-hour counseling seminar so that if they go home and get a little forgetful or rusty about some aspect, they can flip this on and get themselves back up to speed. We always have several local or regional participants who've had a previous successful experience share their story at the seminar so that those who are in attendance can say to themselves, listen, if he or she can do this, I can do this. Then we answer all their questions, have a delightful plant-based luncheon, and then stay in touch as necessary, either through email or through phone call. And with this type of seminar, uh, patients are truly going to learn exactly what they have done. And by that, I mean if we all agree, as most, as all experts would, that where this disease has its inception is with the destruction of the tiny, single-layer-thick innermost lining of the artery called the endothelium. And it's the endothelium that is responsible for providing each of us with a magic molecule of gas, nitric oxide, which is our great protector. And among the many functions that nitric oxide has, the key one is that a normal level of nitric oxide will protect us from ever making blockages or plaque. However, inasmuch as we start eating the foods that progressively destroy our endothelium, even in childhood, I mean, it's the, the oil, <clears throat> the oil, the dairy, the meat, fish, chicken, fowl, coffee with caffeine, and the sugar, maple syrup, molasses, and honey. Uh, these foods and the Western diet are consumed really from childhood on, and so it's no, no great surprise that when we look at an autopsy study of those between the ages of 17 and 34 
who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. Now the disease is already ubiquitous. So you graduate from high school in this country and you get a diploma and you get the foundation for heart disease. So one of the things that really struck me while reading over the results of your study, and I, you know, I read uh, maybe hundreds of studies a year. And so, you know, I'll go to the methodology section and then I'll skip to the results. <laughs> and the results are always um, written in clinical terms, you know, numbers, percentages, there'll be graphs. Reading the chapter in your book on the results of your initial 24-person study, it was the first time I ever found myself teary-eyed <laughs> reading the, the results of a scientific study. You, you were talking about real people. You know, you had the luxury because it was a small enough study. You got to know them personally. And I was just, I was just really struck. It never occurred to me before that you, among pretty much all the researchers I know, were personally involved with, with each of these people. On And it must have been a very, very emotional experience for you. As you know, that you, a scientist can go and do a study and, and get data and have some confidence in it. But what you did must have gone way beyond simple statistical confidence, watching these people go from, you know, basically a commuted death sentence to the way most of them thrived. Well, it was, uh, it really is one of, the, one of the most exciting things that you can enjoy as a physician and a clinician. And I think it's the thing that really keeps driving me now. I noticed some 15 years after I retired from surgery is that uh, the excitement that you get when you have somebody come in to see you has chest pain and angina and they're, they're crippled. They've, you know, they failed their first or second bypass. They failed, they now failed their, uh, all, the, all the drugs, all the other things. And suddenly somebody says, well, why don't we do this old-fashioned idea of treating the causation of the illness? You know, after all, there's been a basic covenant of trust uh, since the days of Hippocrates between the clinician and the uh, uh, and the patient that wherever possible, the, uh, the patient is going to uh, excuse me, the physician is going to share with the patient what is the causation of the illness. And sadly, today. The reason so many people with heart disease are stumbling around and prayerful, prayerful that the sword of Damocles is, is no longer over their head uh, uh, is because they're not, being, they're not having the causation treated. They get their first stent, second stent, third stent. They have no idea when they're going to have their next heart attack. And yet when they suddenly see within 6 to 14 days their angina or chest pain markedly diminishing when they change their food. They're absolutely committed to this, and it's just so exciting to see how ridiculously simplistic it can be to treat this most hideous of diseases, which is actually draining the treasury of the United States faster than anything you can imagine. So when, when I read your intake reports of many of the, the patients in, in the initial study, either they sort of had been dragged there, either by, you know, a doctor saying there's nothing else I can do for you, you know, you might as well go give Esselstyn a visit, or a loved one, or looking back at their family history. It, it, I got the feeling like they, they felt like they were coming to you in the hopes not of freedom, 
but of a life sentence in prison as opposed to a death sentence. You know, like um, what Don you wrote about is basically, you know, well, that's the last good soup I'll ever have. You know, the, the day. Yeah, no, but then what happens? Yeah, but what, what happens to those people when you're changing your diet like that, and they think, "My God, all I'm going to be eating is rabbit food, or something like that." They're going to be penalized. Nothing is further from the truth. Because, look, I'm looking at my own case. I was a, a confirmed cholesterolaholic. Uh, I grew up on an Aberdeen Angus beef farm and dairy farm. My dad had his first heart attack at 43, and. Uh, and yet, what is so exciting is when you start to eat this way, you immediately, within a few weeks, you downregulate your fat receptor. So there goes your craving for fat. You also start to downregulate your sugar receptor if you're careful with that. And now suddenly, all these uh, the natural tastes of food has grown, become enormous. And the way that uh, my wife Anne and daughter Jane and have really synthesized this into some of these absolutely delightful. Uh, recipes, you know, you really find yourself just absolutely looking forward to these meals just as much as you would have to the previous delicious meals that were going to destroy you. Yeah. Right. So at, at what point, you know, with do you find, you know, in sort of like weeks or months or days, do the the people who come to you start noticing that 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 because I'm sure at the beginning, it must be, you know, a huge act of willpower to to pass up the burger well or you, if, the, if if you'll start it is it's interesting i think the one that actually hooked me when i was when i wasn't even trying to do this i remember when i had it in my mind and i was back in a, a meeting in puerto rico and i fell in love with down there with with uh, beans and rice and scallions uh, as it just was is as a simple a dish as it can be, and yet today that to me is absolutely so delightful. We've been able to modify it and, and increase the taste considerably with all the addition of many other types of uh, cut up vegetables that you can put on top of that. But when you have such a basic dish that is so delicious and you know how how good it is for you. That doesn't. That isn't a, a you know a painful teeth teeth clenching adventure at all. It's a, it's it's really quite delightful. And I would say that the majority of patients, I've although they could still, even if they've been doing this for 12 years, they could still find that probably a hamburger or a cheeseburger or a piece of pizza would still taste to to them uh, delicious. Uh, it's not hard eating plant based because when you when you think about it, if you were to go to Okinawa, where they had the greatest number of people who reached the age of 100 of anywhere on the planet, and see what they're, they're eating, I mean, they treasure their food. And it's basically plant-based, and they've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's nothing extreme or radical about it at all. As a matter of fact, I'm sure that they look at the diet of the United States, where people begin to crumble at an early age from these chronic diseases that they never even see in these other cultures. And uh, it's it's interesting that they would look at the United States and say, here's the wealthiest nation on earth that is absolutely crumbling because it cannot pay its own health bill. So... Um 
One of the things that I find when I when I talk to people about this, there's a lot of confusion uh, and a lot of resistance um, to lowering cholesterol because there's there's been a whole bunch of sort of published research and studies and chatter that you know our old understanding of cholesterol was wrong. You know, I think in 2010 I started seeing a chiropractor who's a very you know well-intentioned guy, very very smart. Um, basically, when I told him I was uh, a vegan, he counseled me against that. He said, you know, the China study had been debunked. It was based on faulty conclusions. And we know much more about <laughs> cholesterol than we did then yeah. in the Framingham Heart Study. So, you know, there are these studies that talk about, you know, a more sophisticated way of looking at cholesterol, the very low density lipoproteins. And is this, it, it just seems to me when you compare that to the, the Okinawan research, to the China study, to your studies and others that it's it's a um, people are coming up with more and more sophisticated ways of proving that black is white but what, what what's your what's your sense of these these recent developments in cholesterol obfuscation well i think that's an excellent point and i'm going to try to give you my take on it because a couple of things i think are very overridingly powerful when you look at this argument. First of all, you look at what we've talked about earlier, the millions of people on the planet who will never ever have heart disease. And the common denominator there with the rural Chinese, the Papua Highlands, Central Africa, the Tar Humara is they're all living plant-based. I mean, look at the Tar Humara. They eat what? Beans, corn, and squash. And yet, if you look at their cholesterol numbers, their average cholesterol happens to be because of the way they're eating. They're not getting any cholesterol from their diet. It all has to be made by their liver. And that your liver will usually make the amount of cholesterol that is required. But you you will find some of the Tarahumara, even eating their diet. Uh, this is the work of Bill Connor from the University of Oregon who lived with them for a number of months you'll find some of them will have cholesterols that are 180, 190, but what? Never any heart disease. Well, several things I think are operative here. For cholesterol to do its mischief, you have to have injury to the innermost lining of the artery, that single layer of cells we talked about earlier, the endothelial cells. Now, if you have a low level of cholesterol and you have an integrity of the endothelial barrier, not a problem. And also, if you happen to have a liver, which happens to crank out a few more extra molecules of cholesterol, but at no time are you consuming any of the Western foods that injure that endothelial fortress. Even if you've got a cholesterol of 190, 200, these people are really not going to have a heart attack or heart disease because at no time has their extra cholesterol penetrated or gone through or injured that endothelial fortress. So one of the things that I really make it a great point of whenever we're counseling patients and more recently in our writings, I think it's so important when you look at this disease in order to make sense of it that... For instance, let me give you the example. I have people who are very, very close to me, and I've known exactly what their cholesterol levels have been over the last 30 years. 
and they really have ever been under 185 or 190, sometimes at 200. Yet I know that they are never, ever going to have any problem with their vascular system. Why? Because they are not consuming anything that in any way will injure the endothelial lining of their artery. So if they happen to have, because their liver is contributing more cholesterol naturally to their system, they have a few extra molecules coursing through their bloodstream. As long as they're not touching anything that's going to injure their endothelial cells, they're going to be fine. Does this, uh, does this help at all? Well, yeah. It's, it's, you're talking about really a, a kind of a sophisticated view of disease as not just having one cause, as being very multifactorial. So, well, the, well, there are. That's right. You're, in other words, what are the things that will injure the endothelial cells as well? And for instance, we know that it's, it's oil. There are very careful scientific studies will show that olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil will injure endothelial cells, as does anything that is meat, fish, chicken, and fowl, as will anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, yogurt, caffeine, and coffee, and sugar, maple syrup, molasses, and honey. However, really what is coming to the, in the, I think into a little bit more clarity here is 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 truly how devastating animal protein can be to the endothelial cell. Mm-hmm. So you know, it reminds me a little bit of that, you know, the NRA argument, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. That, that you know, the, maybe the cholesterol is the bullets. And, you know, you could have a lot of bullets, but if you don't have a gun and you don't know how to load it and no one's, pull, you know, holding it and pulling back the, the safety and pulling the trigger and pointing it at someone, then you could say, well, bullets have nothing to do with, with gun deaths. Because you can point to people who have bullets but no guns, so so that, that's the analogy being that, that if you were to look at cholesterol elevation, it is is not going to be terribly harmful, providing you have an endothelial barrier that has not been injured. Right, which which is we're seeing more and more is re, is related to animal protein, and yeah. and not simply saturated fat. Well, I think they're all all those things. I'm not going to throw out saturated fat. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, it's interesting when you look back at the original uh, investigators of of uh, atherosclerosis. When uh, investigators that were like Kurchetsky and Hegstead and others, when they really wanted to make uh, a rabbit or a rodent have the disease as rapidly as they possibly could. Uh, they would uh, give it uh, peanut oil. Yeah. So I guess we're yeah. I mean we're again we're we're not looking at what macronutrient or you know but but at entire dietary patterns. Yeah, but and it's and it's so exciting when we've. Uh, I'm sure that people will say that well, Dr. Esselstyn is a little bit too uh, harsh, severe, or strict. Well. I don't know that uh, that's quite the terminology that I would use because I don't apologize for the fact that we've got a program that seems to be able to absolutely halt and reverse this disease, and we've documented it on multiple peer-reviewed uh, scientific uh, uh, articles and studies, and we're particularly excited and proud of our most recent one of uh, close to 200 patients so that we found that you can actually looking at the criticism of those of us, of those who uh, took it, took us to task at our earlier study because it was small. And the question was whether 
could you actually do this with a larger group of patients and would you get similar results? Well, we did it. Yes, you do. <laughs> you do. Well, so, uh, I mean, you know, as I was reading the criticism of, the, of your first study, I agreed with that part entirely. You know, people said, well, this study is too totally. small to be conclusive. I said, absolutely. I so why don't we spend millions of dollars replicating it on a large scale? Because it sure is suggestive. Um, but I, well, I, I think that the, the, I, will, I will challenge you on that because I think that uh, that's what the, the, the I think that's almost a delaying tactic to say that you've got to spend millions of dollars and have this uh, be a you know a, a sort of a prospective randomized study. That's because there's been absolutely wonderful, brilliant things that have happened to the field of medicine with progress without having to devote yourself to this type of, of study. For instance, I mean, just let's just start with the epidemiology. We know that, that there are millions who don't have this disease. Then we take a look at the uh, what happened in the wartime experience in Norway in World War II when the Germans took away all their livestock, their cattle, their sheep, their goats, their pigs, their chickens, their turkeys were gone. They were largely plant-based, and the deaths from heart attack and stroke during that period of time absolutely plummeted. Uh, and then we have our, our own data. Um, I think you, we can clearly show that there are six ways that you can demonstrate reversal of cardiovascular disease. The most dramatic one being when you see a reversal of the artery itself. That's not going to happen to everybody. Uh, many people will have a plaque that is made up of scar, fibrosis, and calcification. It is not going to go away, but those patients are still going to have an incredible benefit, be able to re return to all their activities of daily living without restriction. So the other way you see reversal is reversal of their stress test. Uh, sometimes that'll occur within a matter of months. It's markedly improved or it may be back to normal. Then you have the PET scan, where at baseline you do a PET scan and you see an area of the heart muscle that is very poorly perfused, but they profoundly follow the diet and within, <laughs> within as early as three weeks we can see those, those areas where that previously, three weeks earlier, in the heart muscle were poorly perfused are now being reperfused. That's three, three ways of reversal. Now, number four, you look at the carotid artery going up to the neck. We had a gentleman recently felt that the end was near because he'd lost his right carotid when he was 40 because of a stroke, and his left carotid artery was now 97% blocked. But he went on the program, and within a year, it was down to only 67% blocked. So you get reversal of the carotid. And uh, also, if you do a pulse volume of people who have, uh, for instance, uh, uh, vascular disease in their leg, and you do a pulse volume, and it's very modest when you first see them, and then suddenly, within 11 or 12 months, as, as their pain in their calf muscle goes away, as they're able to walk nonstop, you repeat the pulse volume, and it may be double what it was at baseline. So clearly, you reverse it in their leg as well. So leg, neck, chest multiple studies, and the most profound way of reversal of all is the patients themselves and their symptoms, where their chest pain disappears, when their claudication or their pain in their calf muscle disappears, or most importantly for many men, when their erectile dysfunction disappears. Mm -hmm. right. So those are the six, six ways of reversal. Right. So again, I guess to, to clarify, what I meant was that any rational scientific establishment would look at your small sample study and say, you know what, yeah. this is where this is where we should be focusing. 
This is this is interesting, profound, suggestive, supported by what else we know enough that if we're going to be spending millions anyway, like let's let's put it here. You know, in the in the meantime, I'm not suggesting that anyone wait to change their diet for a you know a ten year prospective study. But I guess what one one of the um, the criticisms of your approach that that makes some sense to me. Um, which I think you addressed in this recent study is that there's there, there's a trade off between severity of the diet, the way people describe it, and compliance. That you know, well, Esselstyn is saying no, no this, no that, never cheat, no moderation. Therefore, it, it may be the, the the theoretically perfect diet, but nobody's going to stick with it. Did you find that there was that uh, inverse relationship between no, you know, strictness uh, and compliance? Yeah, it's yeah, I think that's a, that is totally a misconception because what we find is when you are spending five and a half hours with these people and what you have done, because you, you have given them such an insight into the mechanism and understanding of their disease. Let me give the example. At the five and a half hour seminar, I will find myself spending almost 45 minutes to an hour on the endothelial cell. Because, as I said earlier, this, they must understand, is where all experts agree, is where you have the inception of this disease. How did you cause this disease in the first place? Here's how you did it. By eating the, the meat, by eating the dairy, by eating the oil, by eating the sugars, by eating the, the having the caffeine, you progressively broke, broke down your endothelial cells so that the amount of wonderful nitric oxide that they were making was no longer enough to protect you. Now, how many people in that room, the 10 or 11 who were there, when they understand that the reason they've had their heart attack, they've had their bypass, they've had their uh, stent, is because they themselves, by eating this horrible diet, have destroyed so much of their endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide, they didn't have enough nitric oxide left to protect themselves. And that's the case so literally. Everybody on the planet who has cardiovascular disease has their disease because they have so seriously trashed, injured, and destroyed the capacity of their endothelial cells to make nitric oxide that they hadn't enough left to protect themselves. So I'll ask them, after about an hour and a half, I said, now look, we're only about, we just started getting into this day, and yet you now have really had what I think is already the nugget, the most important part of this. How many of you here can look me in the eye, raise your hand, and tell me you can't wait to get out of this room to go have that hamburger or that cheeseburger <laughs> or something else that is going to further destroy your endothelial cells? When you know that when you stop it, you yourself are able to renew the capacity of the endothelial cell to restore your nitric oxide, halt your disease, and reverse it. In other words, you just, and none of these people, and I ask them this time and again, none of them have heard this from their expert cardiologists. They never go into the detail of the causation of the illness. And so the, the reason we succeed, these people really are ready to rejoice with the fact that they can eat a delicious diet of whole uh, of whole grain, uh, plant-based foods, and at the same time are empowered because they themselves, not a drug, not a procedure, are now going to be able to halt this horrible disease. Hmm. So when when they hear that, do they 
you know, my first thought is, is if someone told me that, that kind of I had caused it, I would resist that and maybe be in denial. It kind of reminds me of like the, the seven stages of mourning, you know, sort of denial, bargaining. Well, I don't think anger. I don't think they do it. I don't think they do it on purpose. I think they found they're they're delighted to realize that unknowingly they did this. Not it's not like saying I'm blaming them because they did it on purpose. Nobody's ever told them this before. So they must they must experience some degree of anger at at the the oh, the, oh God yes. So t- what what is oh, that what, what does that look like? <laughs> well, that's not that's not very attractive. <laughs> Oh my gosh! No, some of them get absolutely furious at the fact that they they were never ever told about this. And what really is embarrassing is when they they've gone to uh, because the the Cleveland Clinic where I work is an enormous organization, and it's quite fascinating that at, at one end of the campus where we have this empire, uh, this uh, cardiovascular industry, uh, and the, if I had to have a stent or a bypass, I'd probably go to the clinic because they are you know. Uh, really, are known around around the world as having expertise in stents and bypasses and and drugs. But when they have their uh, utter failures there, as so often happens, and then they that they never tell the patients about the other end of the campus where I work, and then the patients find me and they say, "My God, I can't understand why the hell didn't the guy down the main campus tell me about the fact that you were here and you could cure this." <laughs> I wonder if the if the anger is actually very helpful, um, you know, in sort of bringing people a sense of resolve to, you know, sort of, it's sort of like they have a common enemy. It's much easier to get people to to rally. Around. No, that's an interesting point. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think there is a, uh, a kindred spirit uh, uh, that evolves. And, that, for instance, we always give we pass around a. Uh, a cupboard that has uh, spaces for everybody who's there at that particular session to leave their contact information, their home address, phone numbers, email, and so forth, because they often like to stay in touch with each other and share recipes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And stories. Okay. So let, let's, let's talk about this uh, most recent study. So the original one had started yeah. with 24... 18 were compliant. You followed them uh, yeah. for two two decades, and I guess you're still in touch with, with many or something. Uh, now, that, that's that pretty well. The last time I really seriously worked them up was at 12 years, which makes it longer than any other study. And yet I, I refer back to, by the time I wrote the book, many of them were close to 20 years. Now, uh, I haven't done it lately, but I know some of them now are, are really approaching uh, 28 years of, of follow-up. I mean, I'm specifically thinking now of one wonderful woman who was in the movie Forks Over Knives. Uh, is that Evelyn? Evelyn, and she uh, she is obviously now well deep into her 80s. So she she has been with us now for 28 years, and she had had two bypasses and, and was told to go get a rocking chair, and uh, and that was it. I mean, she was it was her life was over. That was done, and uh, and yet she. Uh, she couldn't stand the idea that all the money that she and her husband had tried to work hard so hard for, that if she died and her husband remarried, she couldn't stand the idea of this going to another woman. <laughs> so she was, <laughs> she was, she was very motivated to uh, 
uh, and she's outlived her husband and and everybody else now. And she's you know. So we have a number of those people that have gotten into their 90s, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So, so what made you want to do another study? What, what did you feel were the, the gaps in the first one or, or changes in your knowledge or criticisms from the research community? Well, I wanted, wanted to, yeah, I guess I, one of the things I wanted to answer was the, was the criticism, whether we could do this in a larger group, and also was a, uh, our own fascination to, to learn that an entirely different way of, of uh, enlightening and educating these people was was going to be uh, equally and powerfully so uh, effective, and the idea that you know it would, that made it so exciting was that without bankrupting the nation with these ridiculous uh, procedures, which other than in the other than in an emergency really are so hazardous to patients, uh, that that we could really totally. We can end this epidemic. We can end this dem- epidemic really in a in a generation if we could somehow incorporate this type of food uh, into the schools. So, so the the new study was it was simply this one day, which ended up being five and a half hour intensive yeah. Yeah. Uh, intervention with food and, yeah. and presentation. And yeah. was what what else aside from that? You mean the uh, the intervention itself? What, what, what aside from that five and a half hour blitz? Um, what was was that it? And then well, they that, were... that was that was pretty much it. Except that obviously they would anytime anytime they had questions or if they had uh, test results that uh, I wanted them to send us. That is to say, they would often would send us simply as their lipid profile if they get their cholesterol done. When that got to be pretty stable, they and it was there was no point in sending it to us if it was unchanged from all the year, years before. But if they had a follow-up, or if they had a t- stress test, uh, or they had another angiogram, for heaven's sake, so they had some other uh, evaluation which was pertinent, they would often uh, send it to us because it took me a year and a half when I had to uh, I had to call every one of them personally myself to to get the material for the paper. Huh. Yeah. So see, like in your typical study, there'll be a, a clear demarcation between the intervention itself and the measurement. It sounds like right. here the measurement was in, in some ways part of the intervention because all of a sudden the locus of control is in the patient rather than the doctor right. or the researcher. That, that yeah. It's artificial to tease the two out. They, everything they're doing, everything they're looking at Everything they're wondering is part of the intervention. And the uh, the bottom line for the study was the outcome. Uh, it was it was quite exciting to see that. Uh, well, you know, immediately people were going to ask, well, how sick were these people? Well, of the 177, for instance, who complied, 119 before they ever saw us had came came to us having had stents or a bypass operation, which gives you some idea of how ill they were. But we found that in 27, and there was no real attempt to focus on this, but but since then I think we have had a greater focus on it, and that is we feel that if we can see patients before before they've had their standard of bypass, especially if it's elective, they won't ever have to have it. In other words, 10% of stents are done for people who are in the middle of a heart attack. The other 90% that are done are elective. 
And there's no question that uh, elective does not prolong life, and there's no data that show that it'll perfect, protect you from a future heart attack. Now, if you're in the middle of a heart attack, a stent can be absolutely life-saving, and that's really quite dramatic. But for these other 90%, it's just an absolute waste of money, and you're, again, you're diverting their, their whole focus away from what they could do to stop this disease. But for instance, there's even some data that suggests when you start wiggling that catheter uh, into those arteries, that isn't a good thing for to have happen to the artery because if the catheter somehow interferes or injures that delicate endothelial barrier, then you may open up a spot where disease can develop. I just, I just had a vision of all these unemployed uh, cardiologists. Oh, no, no. I know exactly what to do with them. <laughs> I know exactly what to do with them. They're, they're all, they're all going to be uh, lining up to take they're the all gonna, No, they're going to go down to North Carolina. They're going to get these little plots of land. They're all going to grow herbs. <laughs> <laughs> there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> um I mean, to, you know, we we can joke, but in the book you do mention that uh, someone you know someone resi was resistant, and you asked him why, and he said, "Well, I bill five million dollars a year in this stuff." Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's pretty tough competition. Oh, you know, I tried to be graceful, and 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 all my other oh pronouncements through the years, I've tried to always, and the cardiologists are really actually basically are pretty fine people. They really want to. I think I have care, and they they have caring and compassion for their patients, and I'm really in a, I'm in amaze at their fund of knowledge. But the gloves are off now. I mean, it's just it's just so apparent that there's just that this these procedures are really almost an invitation to larceny, and the uh, the the fact that people will just constantly deny the fact that the nutrition has any role in this when the data are absolutely so powerful and so clear. Right. Well, the, the fact I mean, that how can you... Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, the fact that they're good, smart people makes it even more tragic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, what has to happen is, you see, in their training, you really can't blame people for... Uh, because here they have been tossed... They have been tossed a problem. And their problem happens to be that they are the specialty that is caring for the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, and yet they are absolutely, totally ill-equipped to deal with it. Yes, they can treat symptoms with drugs and they can treat symptoms with procedures, but they have no idea how to treat the causation of, their, of the illness that they've been asked to take care of. They have zero training in nutrition. They have zero training in behavior modification. They feel insecure with it, and so therefore they've got to deny it. Mm. It almost it almost feels like this the uh, the emotional equivalent to being a uh, a field surgeon in Vietnam, where the 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 overwhelming facts of what you're facing necessarily outstrip whatever you could do. You know, if we could if we could get the the the, uh, the family practitioners, if they would develop a schema a schematic to do this. Because we've had now enough. We've had, I think, the other day we counted. We've had 125 physicians in the last five years who have apprenticed with us, and that really, to me, is a signal that they are very, very interested in trying to learn more about this. We have a couple of uh, physicians who have apprenticed with us who have done this now long enough 
that they themselves have submitted papers on the results of their practice, and uh, in other words, replicating what we have shown. And it is just so exciting and so powerful to think that there are other <laughs> cardiologists who are so upset with the fact that no matter how they employ what they learned in their residency, it doesn't cure patients. You see, with the present cardiovascular approach, we will never, they can't cure patients, they'll never end the epidemic, and it absolutely will bankrupt the country. 45% of Medicare is cardiology, and cardiology is stent after stent after stent after bypass, congestive heart failure, then you die of a benign foodborne illness that never was treated. Well, again, you know, I'm, for some reason, I'm fixating on the, the war metaphor. It's like, you know, you could have all the field hospitals you want, but the answer is to end the war. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Exactly. No, it's, it's really quite striking when you think of how miraculous what medicine did for things like uh, polio, even, even, even measles with vaccination. And yet here's the most hideous of all. You don't have to have a vaccination. You just need a little education. You don't ever have to have these, this cardiovascular illness. I don't care what your genes are or your stress. <laughs> right, yeah. and there's no, there's no cost-benefit analysis because there's no cost. Well, you know, here, let's just take for a minute the, the plea that, that the, the most resistant to us are making this, and we've got to have that wide prospective randomized study. Well, to do that, you've got to have what we call in medicine equipoise. In other words, we take a thousand patients who had a bypass and a thousand patients who are going to be treated with plant-based nutrition. Immediately what happens, you know that with the bypass at with the fatality at three percent, three percent of a thousand is what? Three percent of a thousand is thirty people will absolutely be dead before they get out of the hospital because of that uh, operation. All right? That's that's just for starters. That doesn't happen when you give people plant-based nutrition. They don't, they don't die within the week. <laughs> so you've got these deaths to deal with. Now there are complications with it, operation. Well, stroke. How many strokes? 3%. So another 30 will stroke. How many will have a hemorrhage? Well, probably about the same. Another 30 will have a hemorrhage. Another 3% will have what we call a sternal wound dehiscence. That is to say... The chest wound will fall apart with infection, and that and that can be nasty, sometimes leading to death, but uh, often uh, much, much more prolonged or multiple hospitalizations to try to resolve that. Then there's the infection, uh, other abdominal emergencies that will occur. I mean, it's just it's nonsensical. For instance, the classic of where this business about a randomized study broke down was in the thing called ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which was really a great breakthrough for helping uh, newborn infants with uh, respiratory distress. And somehow somebody said, nope, this has to be done with a prospective randomized study. Well, they started, and the first four babies who didn't get it, dead. Now, that suddenly, that suddenly that study was stopped. Can you imagine being a mother who signed a slip of paper randomizing a child into the group that dead? I mean, this is, uh, this is crazy. Me me meaning that we can't do the study because to give people the current standard of care is, violates the Hippocratic Oath. That's, that's what I feel, but, but my, my, many of my, uh, uh, my colleagues uh, will disagree. 
<laughs> saying, well, that's it's it's, it's the standard. That's what Jesus. That's pretty low low standard. Yeah. So, uh, so what were the, the the results of this study, the the, the one hundred and seventy seven patient study? Well, what what happened was that we uh, we found that we wanted to look at the bottom line, which is recurrent major cardiac events. Now, recurrent major cardiac events are things like death, heart attack, and stroke. The of the People of the 177 uh, followed for 3.75 years. There were no deaths from heart attack. Uh, there, excuse me, there were no new heart attacks. So the heart attack and death were out. One patient had a stroke, okay? Right. Now, uh, it's interesting. This was somebody who had trouble with high blood pressure, and he was over in China. And he really was eating off the economy and that just was pure assault. His blood pressure spiked up and he was hospitalized in a hospital in China with a mild stroke. He recovered rather well, but uh, some people say I shouldn't have included him because he really was not compliant. But I don't know if you, if you made it a hundred percent, nobody would believe you. <laughs> so, uh, so we bit the bullet, and he'd been compliant in the most of the uh, most of the time. Now, uh, there was one other person that was not listed as heart attack, uh, stroke, or death, and I included him as a failure. And that was somebody who ended up having to have a uh, a bypass operation because of progression of disease in his coronary arteries. And I was so uh, I was so uh, puzzled about why that happened because this was somebody I thought was terribly compliant that I was able to get an invitation uh, to his house and I actually, uh, with his permission, I <laughs> can't believe I did this. I went through his refrigerator and cupboards to try to find out <laughs> if, if there was if there was that inspector at his, at his, at his, no at his invitation because he wasn't sure that there wasn't something there that he shouldn't have been eating as well and it was pretty much came down to the fact we thought it was really a little bit heavier yeah, in sugar now other other things that we perhaps have to keep an eye on and look carefully at are the patients who have what we call sleep apnea and uh, and also those who really have a fair amount of what we call periodontal disease because periodontal disease can really be troublesome for the health of the endothelium and uh, meaning gum, gum disease chronic, yeah exactly and uh, what, what's the what's the connection? and also with sleep ap sleep apnea can can really be a, a a precipitating factor yes go ahead mm -hmm. i'm curious what's the connection between periodontal disease and uh, risk of well, it seems that uh, it's interesting. It's uh, it just seems that the sepsis infection, inflammation in in, in that area, uh, can be really a a factor which drives down the capacity of the endothelial cells to make nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and sleep apnea. Uh, sleep apnea again. What happens is you know when people are. Uh, you look at the pathophysiology of that, 
you fairly you end up with a fair amount. I mean, it's almost as if people stop breathing and die <laughs> at night. Then, of course, they their the mechanisms kick in and they start doing this. But at the time that they're having the sleep apnea, there can be rather strange rhythms of the heart. The uh, the adrenal glands will kick in. There'll be a, a outpouring of epinephrine and a, a fair amount of hypertension. Uh, a whole cascade of uh, events that can really uh, lead to vascular injury. Mm. I'm curious about that because I was diagnosed with sleep apnea when, yeah. when I, when I yeah. went for my uh, my sleep studies. I was the conspicuously the only person, the only patient, you know, under 300 pounds. So, you know, I, I oh no, a- no, no, but no, no, there are there are yes, but they're increasingly as we understand this, they're you don't have to be overweight to have this problem. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, so I, I'm normal? <laughs> so, and, and how this, the, the latest study, how, how long did you track people for? Is it, is it, are you still collecting well, data? Well, the, long, the longest was 13 years. We, uh, the average was, as, as I recall, was uh, 3.75 years was the, the follow-up we had. And, uh, you know, that's, that's about the length of many uh, cardiovascular studies that are published in, in uh, highly graded uh, medical journals will follow their patients. Mm-hmm. This was almost, almost four years. And yep. ha- has this gotten a, a sort of a warmer, wide, wider reception than the original study? Well, it was in the Journal of Family Practice, and it, it's interesting that it, uh, no, it didn't it didn't take any headlines at the time because uh, uh, it's interesting that in the in the in the uh, area of medicine that I move in, in the circles that I'm familiar with, uh, everybody sometimes seems to be aware of it. And they are, they really think they're very they are very positive about it. Um, there are the uh, critics that we that especially I think I think of a few who have been critical of our earlier study who absolutely absolutely jumped on this and said you know it was not <laughs> it was not a thousand patients it was not prospective it was not randomized and, groping for any kind of straws to say what well, what was happening here why did these patients vanquish their disease i mean if you look at our book in the picture section of the book we have uh, really almost all but close to five of those areas that you can demonstrate clearly disease reversal and it just is so clearly uh, spelled out you know it's very interesting that there are some people who will claim that our approach they're not familiar with it, but they'll say that it's, that it's not scientific, that we're sort of part of a cult. I should share with you that before I ever started this study, back in 1985, when this idea occurred to me, I went to the woman, woman who was then director of the research division at the Cleveland Clinic. And her name was Dr. Bernadine Healy. And when I went to her with this proposal, and she simply, she was nice, and she said, look, this hasn't been done. You better be sure you keep accurate records. And she kind of, from time to time, would peek in at our study. She then went on, after she left uh, the clinic as head of research, she became president of the American Heart Association. Uh, then she later went on to become uh, director of the National Institutes of Health. 
And after she left that, it was in 2008, uh, when she was being interviewed on National Public Radio, uh, that uh, somebody asked her about our study. And at that point, she had said that uh, Dr. Esselstyn's study has demonstrated proof of concept. Now, I don't know how you go any higher in the scientific ladder than with somebody who's president of the American Heart Association and director of the National Institutes of Health. And she was very supportive and made a very glowing jacket comment for our book. Uh, so for those who are critical about the, the science, I would say, well, why don't you see what Bernadine has had to say about it? Hmm. <laughs> so um, when you did your first study, you were certainly not known for, you know, research and, and uh, in, into, right. into cardiology. Uh, no. And so at, at this point, you've been featured in Forks Over Knives, which has amazed everyone by becoming so popular and influential. Um, you're, you're known to be a, uh, a medical advisor to, uh, to celebrities and, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton. I'm curious, um, you know, I, I, I know you, you know, you're, you're a very down to earth, humble guy who, you know, grew up on a farm. I know this, this hasn't done anything to your ego, but I'm wondering, has it done anything to your perceived power with patients? Do people come to you looking, you know, like you're a, a famous celebrity or halo effect? Does it, does it make it easier for you to do your job? I don't know whether it makes it easier or not, but I would, uh, I would ag agree with you that there are uh, some people who are, who are coming because they've heard about our uh, activities with, uh, with others, or they've heard about it through other venues, which tend to uh, maybe push us a little out of proportion. But there's no question that when I look at the people uh, who are at our intensive counseling seminar, and they'll, they suddenly become aware that they're sitting there with somebody who came from Florida. They themselves might be from Texas. Here's somebody from Wisconsin, another person who's from Idaho. And they thought, then they come to another. And, then, and I think that it helps us greatly. That when they look around, they say, my God, people are coming here from all over the United States. I really better pay attention. This might really be something that could help me. <laughs> and, so that's funny. Even, even, even your your fame and influence translates into a greater locus of control for your patients, that they look at each other yeah, and no, say, wow, I, this must yeah. be real. Yeah, I, I think that I think there is a there is a component of that factor for sure. Yeah. Uh, so curious if um, since you wrote the book and since Forks Over Knives, have you learned anything that makes you that has changed your mind about anything? I'm thinking specifically you have um, recommendations for supplementation in the book. Um, you know, calcium, other things. Have you? Oh yeah, have no, you altered, you know, yeah, you good, some of your views. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, we now take away the calcium uh, uh, as a supplement, uh, multivitamins as a supplement, B12, uh, yes, and uh, oh, there's one other. What am I? What am I forgetting now? Uh, D. Yeah. Now, as far as D is concerned. Uh, uh, I think the jury is still out on vitamin D. Uh, so I've sort of take the little bit, the middle of the road, and my, I think the safest suggestion we would have there is I asked 
as far as D is concerned, ask the patients to have their vitamin D level checked. And if it is definitely low, then I would think they should take a modest supplement of one or 2,000 international units daily until they kick themselves up into the low normal range. Then take, if necessary, a modest supplement of 1,000 to 2,000 uh, international units daily just to maintain that low level of normal. I don't think there's any point in getting up very high. I think there are some suggestions that there may be some hazards uh, to uh, overdosing on vitamin D, and that's why I, but I don't want it, everybody to be too uh, terribly low. So that's where we stand on that one. So I would say I take out the multivitamins for sure, take out the calcium, definitely have B12 left in there, but the D. Now, there's one other uh, thing that I, I, I should mention that uh, is an addition since the book. And that may be a little bit uh, complicated, but I want to take a moment, if you've got a moment, for this to sure. do. Um, if we really want to accelerate, if I've, if I've become increasingly aware of patients who have heart disease, especially those who are symptomatic or who have chest pain or angina, and I really want to have them just turn this around as absolutely as fast as they possibly can. So once they stop eating the food that is, is going to trash their endothelial cells, that's for me is no longer that's not enough. I want more. And that is I ask them to visualize the plaque inside their artery. If they could get their head inside, they would see that their artery blockage is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. Now, therefore, in that setting... I need lots of good, strong antioxidants. No, do not ever go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant. It's not going to work. It's going to be harmful. I want them to get their antioxidants from food. Okay, what food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value. O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity. Because... When they consume something like, let's say, raspberries, blueberries, and strawberries on your cereal, hey, that's terrific. But there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can out-trump the antioxidant power of the green leafy vegetables. So not in the book, but now something that we do routinely. I look them in the eye and I say, now that you understand that you've got this oxidative cauldron, I need to have you have a green leafy vegetable at least six times a day as follows. And this is when I'm absolutely known as a taskmaster, but I'm truly not as mean as I look. Now, here's what we do. I need you to chew, never smoothies, never juicing. I want you to chew a green leafy vegetable that is roughly the size of your fist after it has been cooked five and a half to six minutes in boiling water. So it is now nice and tender, and then you anoint it with several drops of lemon juice or a delightful balsamic vinegar. And you chew this at breakfast. You do it again as a mid-morning snack. You do it again with your luncheon sandwich. You do it again mid-afternoon. You do it again at dinner time, and I adore it when you do it in the evening with, <coughs> with a bowl full of kale. Now, what have you done? 
all day long you have taken that oxidative cauldron of uh, inflammation and you have basked it and you have bathed it with nature's most powerful antioxidants. And that's why you often will see this profound and prompt reversal of chest pain and angina. And these people are, know they're getting them the right way. Now, what are the green leafy vegetables that I want them to have? Bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard greens, beet greens, mustard greens, turnip greens, napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus. So, and, so it sounds uh, like you've practiced that. Yeah, I have done that before, uh, <laughs> Howard. You're right. Now, there's one other final wrinkle on this because let's suppose we, we've made quite a point about the importance of nitric oxide and endothelial health. But we know that even somebody who at age 50 is beautifully healthy, the amount of nitric oxide that their endothelial tissue can make is now 50% of what they can make at age 25. Now, does that mean that the old carcass is letting you down? No, because you now can use another avenue to make additional nitric oxide. How do you do that? Through the gastrointestinal tract. How do you do that? If I can persuade these patients to chew in that green leafy vegetable mode, a nitrate such as such as Swiss chard, kale, spinach, arugula, beet greens, or beets. When you chew that nitrate, those nitrates are going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the grips and grooves of your tongue, which will reduce the nitrate in your mouth to nitrite. When you swallow the nitrites, they are further reduced in your stomach by gastric acid to nitric oxide, which may now enter your nitric oxide pool. The nitrites in your stomach that did not get converted further downstream in the gastrointestinal tract will be reabsorbed into the circulation. And when those nitrites circulate back to your salivary gland, they will be concentrated 10 to 20 fold. So that now as you chew additional food, your own salivary glands are pouring nitrites into your mouth, which when swallowed will be further reduced by your gastric acid to more nitric oxide. So, uh, so you asked about what was missing in the book. That was not in the book. Wow. So um, about how much, let's, let's say, kale. If I wanted to have six hand-sized portions of cooked kale a day, is that like two pounds or three pounds? What, what, how, do people, how do people do that? What does it look like? Well, I, I always try to have it uh, uh, look like maybe something about three-quarters of the size of your fist to your fist, depending on how big your fist is. Because, look, Howard, nobody in North Carolina has ever gone to the emergency room with an overdose of green leafy vegetables and too much riboflavin. <laughs> it doesn't happen. And you're not going to get fat or heavy from eating those green leafy vegetables. But you are going to absolutely overwhelm yourself with these powerful phytonutrients that are so beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, I have to ask because, um, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a reductionist. I was uh, I was converted by by Dr. Campbell. <laughs> Campbell, uh, that's right. But can I just have like a superfoods powder or a bottle of nitric oxide, which, you know, that chiropractor that nope. I mentioned? No, no, no. I, drink, I don't know. know. Two tablespoons twice a day. That doesn't do the same thing. Uh, sorry. I'm. 
I'm I'm just familiar with uh, doing it with uh, whole food is grown. I hate the old idea of when you take in front. I mean, for instance, these people that think uh, or take protein powders. Good grief! I mean, uh, I, get it through food because nobody has any idea of the horrible side effects and reactions that many of these may have, take or where where they have truly come from. And I just love the idea that, that people can, uh, and we've had such excellent results with it. I, I don't want people to take these crazy shortcuts and, and undermine the system. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So how do people do it? Do they do they like make a big batch once a day and just keep dipping into it? Or are they constantly like cooking greens? Every, everybody, everybody does it a little differently. Obviously, somebody who is a, who has to go to work. See, the tough one there is the mid-morning and mid-morning uh, mid and mid-afternoon. But if you've got a microwave at work, uh, you know, you've, you've got it done. You know, it works. Gotcha. Um, so what are you working on? I don't know. I don't know of anybody else who's doing that. I agree, and I would agree with you. I'm a little aggressive on that standpoint. But, God, it, it just seems to reap such a... A prompt dividends for the patients that it, that I really kind of still am insisting on it. Well, I you know, I would probably down the line here. I probably it's, it's time to update and write another book. The public, because I think that's been the motivation that came from our our second study, uh, really to look at the. Uh, and I think we ought to make I ought to write an article on the six ways of disease reversal. Nobody else seems to be. Uh, focusing or pushing that dimension as well. And uh, and then in the meantime, it, it be, we have all these uh, patients to care for, and uh, and the, it's always I try not to uh, turn down too many invitations to try to speak or share the share the information. Uh, so yeah, I'm. <laughs> I'm, I'm still uh, excited to be so busy. I mean, I, I guess what really uh, propels me is, quite frankly, is the fact that uh, you've heard me say this perhaps before, that I really think that medicine is truly on the cusp of what could be a seismic revolution in health. And the reason that it, I feel so powerfully this way is the, that the emergence of what we're seeing from this group of patients that we've cared for for heart disease. For example, when you treat somebody with heart disease and they get it, their obesity disappears, their diabetes disappears, their high blood pressure disappears, their risk for stroke and heart attack disappears, their risk for vascular dementia disappears. I mean, then you talk, and there goes osteoporosis, asthma, uh, GERD, that is gastrointestinal, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, gone. Um, asthma, many of the, the uh, autoimmune diseases, such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis, that can be so dramatic when you see somebody with rheumatoid arthritis get rid of their uh, pain, get rid of their horrible drugs they're taking. Lupus, the same. And there's even McDougall's work showing the power against uh, MS. So when you suddenly realize that most physicians, when they identify the, these common illnesses, 
reach for a script pad and you write out and you start taking drugs on top of doing nothing to halt the inception of these diseases. And once medicine and especially medical schools get it straight in their head that they have the power to teach these students how to absolutely prevent and treat these diseases with the power of nutrition, uh, this will be a seismic revolution. The other thing that's going to change is that physicians will be rewarded not on a piecework basis, but for outcomes. And when you start rewarding physicians for outcomes, they've got to stop this nonsense of just writing out a script for everybody. They've got to start treating the causation of the illness. Mm. <laughs> That's, the, I can think of very few professions that are that are clamoring for more accountability. I guess <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the exception. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so if somebody um, wants to work with you or find out more or, you know, just listens to this and decides they want to live. What should they do? They all, well, we, we, uh, uh, we have an, right now, it's an, uh, an open, open door policy for uh, uh, people who are professionals who call me and want to be more familiar with it. I, I simply invite them to come and they uh, sit in the room while we're doing our intensive seminar. I think this this week uh, coming up, I think there are ten people who are signed up. <laughs> the room is going to be pretty filled with with uh, hangers on. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So so some so a professional who's looking to incorporate some of this into their practice should just contact you. Well, the, you know, the other thing is it would be yeah it would be it would be nice to to be able to uh, increasingly have others. Uh, I can see where. Let's suppose you're just a cardiologist or you're a family practitioner, and if and if you tried to incorporate what we're doing, you've really got to make a significant change because I almost insist that the spouse or the significant other be there and they come for free. Well, if you try to do this and you try to do it at the end of an office visit with a patient, if you even if you realize the power of this, this doesn't work. So uh, that would mean that if you're a family practitioner, you're going to have to start taking off uh, Saturday mornings, perhaps maybe to commit to the panel of, of, of patients that, that you have that would qualify for this. Because, see, if you try to do this on a Wednesday afternoon, maybe the, uh, that would work, but the, uh, but the wives, if they are employed, wouldn't be able to attend. So... Uh, it's 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 challenging from that from that standpoint because it's you it really is totally a different mode of, of practice and we've got to figure out a way down the line uh, to uh, <clears throat> to really uh, obtain some uh, insurance coverage because I think physicians do uh, really uh, qualify to be compensated for their time for this effort yes. Well, it's 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 a crazy world where they get paid for their Monday through Friday yeah, nine yeah. to five stuff that makes people worse or doesn't or yeah. simply prolongs suffering, and they have to work for free on weekends to get people well. Yeah. So maybe if they just worked on weekends and got people well, they would you know they would undo. <laughs> <laughs> they could have the rest of the week. Uh, uh, yeah. For for relaxation. So if, if people want to follow up, you have a website, dresselston.com. Is that the best yes, place for that, people to go? That'll, that'll, that'll work. Uh, uh -huh. Correct. Yep. Awesome. Well, Caldwell Esselstyn, Essie, thank you so much for taking so much time to 
to tell your story and, and help no. explain it. It's been a, a great honor to get to know you, and I hope you go from, from strength to strength and keep spreading the word. <laughs> Howard, thank you so much. Have All a great day. Be well. Bye-bye. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Essie. Let me tell you a little bit about some upcoming shows. Next week, I have a mystery guest whom I'm not revealing because we haven't recorded yet and I don't want to jinx it. Following that are two shows about food. One is uh, Yum Universe with the author Heather Crosby, who has written a fantastic book about the nuts and bolts of the plant-based kitchen and the plant-based lifestyle. And we've already, in our family, changed our eating habits considerably thanks to a brilliant suggestion she has about a week of salads made in advance. So uh, I hope you'll join me for that one. Also, the following week, I have the queen of green smoothies, Tracy Russell, explaining how she uses smoothies to help people get healthier. And following that, we have another mystery guest. Again, um, I think you'll find him very interesting, but we just haven't gotten on the phone yet. If you like the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to help spread the word, the best ways are through social media, telling other people about it, helping them find interviews that uh, can inspire them to plant themselves, and also to go to iTunes and leave a positive review. So that's it for me. And as always, be well, my friends.